Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Join us for today's episode of the Utopian Realities Slow Save Life on Planet Earth Blog Talk Radio Show, bringing you solution bearers with practical, proven, scientific ways to help you eliminate global level irradiation and extinction level threats from your body and bringing forward the means to restore and sustain global waters, air, soil, and sentient life. Welcome. Greetings, this is Siava, also known as Lisa Wolf, your host. Happy Earth Day to all who are joining us. Welcome to the Utopian Realities, from concept to planetary restoration, slope, save and sustain life on planet Earth, Earth Aid Now, Saturday's Solution Bearers Forum, where we bring you solution bearers who can help us to mend the sacred hoop of life. As always, listeners, follow the links to listen to the program and to join the live chat page during the program, and phone 845-277-9359 with questions or comments. Thank you for joining us this Saturday, April 22nd, 2017, as we continue with the ongoing live, on-air, Saturday, Standing Rock, Savage Sovereignty, Water Protector Solutions Forum, with Gary Rowland Sr., and we hope we will be joined by Phyllis Young and Eagle Eye Man. Gary Rowland Sr. was born October 13, 1951, in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. He is a headman and chief of the Fire Lightning Teostia in Wounded Knee. He has been the director of the Holocaust Museum at Wounded Knee on a volunteer basis since 2000. And I'm going to mention right up front that we are fundraising for Gary and his family. Gary is a homeowner and head of household with eight family members residing in his home and four horses to care for. And Gary and his family have been without water since his pump went out months ago. And he was able to purchase the pump for his well but has been told it will cost $650 for labor to put it in. So please help this elder and his family stop having to haul water on a daily basis. He helps his community and nation. Let's help him water his life. And I will um, give you the address at the end of the show again, but please make a donation to help Gary and his family be able to get their water flowing again by donating to GoFundMe.com slash slope and specifying your donation is for Gary Rowland Sr.'s water fund because as you'll notice when you go to the page, we're also fundraising for solutions to extinction level threats as well as, you know, just generally supporting the mission. Welcome, Gary. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, Gary, will you do us the honor of leading us in opening prayer? Oh. Oh, gosh, you're not. Oh, 
So you are, you live in Wounded Knee, and so much is, is written about Wounded Knee um, from past to present. Um, would you tell us about Wounded Knee as, you know, beginning from... Um, olden times to now? Oh, Tehiakte is my Lakota name, English name Gary Rowland. I grew up here, a lifelong resident, and uh, I'm descendant of Chief Fire Lightning, who was Ogallala. When we first settled this Panagenian Reservation, Chief Fire Lightning was allotted. The very land where the massacre took place in 1890. And the murder of our relatives, Chief Bigfoot and, and his family and his band, and there was also the family of uh, Chief Sitting Bull, who was murdered on December 15, 1890, and some of his family fled to Chief Bigfoot camp in the Cheyenne River Reservation, and today uh, is known as Bridger, South Dakota, on the Cheyenne River Reservation, the Cheyenne River, and so the Wunderni uh, is very uh, significant and uh, sacred place. And when Chief Bigfoot fled from north, uh, the military notified the Pine Ridge agency that Bigfoot was on his way to Pine Ridge, and so. You know, at that time, there was like 5,000 military uh, cavalry here on this reservation. 
to quell the, the Wanahewa Chipi, the, the ghost dance. And so they were intercepted probably about five miles north of here, and they were brought to Wounded Knee. And they knew that uh, Chief Bigfoot was on his way, so they evacuated all the residents here in this small village. And so they brought him here, and the next day they were uh, massacred. So right after the massacre, they asked Chief Fire Lightning if it was okay for them to bury the, you know, our relatives here in Wounded Knee. So he said, yes, you know, those are our relatives. So from then on, uh, Chief Bigfoot went with the delegation in uh, 1892 to Washington, D.C. And the Catholic Church illegally took possession to the 40 acres you know, uh, surrounding the massacre site. And so uh, back in 1987, the descendants of Chief Fire Lightning, we decided to build a, a building to tell the people the truth of what happened. 1890 and the 
they started in to uh, work, you know, to finish the, the roof, and they brought windows, doors, and the, uh, the project was completed in like seven days. And so, wow. So uh, we had a <clears throat> grand opening that fall, and dedication ceremony and but uh, the project was never really completed like uh, the plumbing and the bathrooms and stuff were never finished and so up to this day we're uh, trying to get some help in finishing you know the bathrooms and remodeling the building and your home really is your office, isn't it, then, as well? So when you're asking for help with the water system for your own home, it's actually also benefiting uh, the museum because that's where you work out of. Um, I'd like to welcome, I know that Morning Light has joined us. Welcome, Morning Light. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. And, uh, Gary, let's also uh, go back to Wounded Knee in the 70s and, and your personal story and experience. Uh, will you tell listeners something more about, about yourself and your past? and what actually happened um, at Wounded Knee in the 70s? Yes, uh, I grew up here in Wounded Knee, and my mother, my father, grandparents all resided here, and the time I was growing up, nobody spoke English in our family. So when I... Uh, started school, it was pretty difficult for me to learn the, the second language, English. And while growing up, my great-grandmother, Sophie Dick-Turnip, told us stories of how we are related, closely related to Chief Crazy Horse on my mother's side. And on my father's side, my father, Clarence Rowland, his mother, my grandma, Annie, breaks in, was, uh, was a lineal descendant of the great chief Red Cloud. Annie's father was Jim Red Cloud, and I remember him when I was a child growing up. He had uh, one... One uh, one of his legs was amputated, so he had a wooden leg. And Jim Red Cloud's father was the great Chief Red Cloud. So I'm a lineal descendant of the great Chief Red Cloud and uh, Chief Crazy Horse on my mother's side. So I'm a remnant of great chiefs and warriors that fought the United States government. Crazy Horse uh, 
captured the United States flag in the field of battle and that no other nation has ever accomplished that. So, you know, I'm very proud of who who I am, where I come from. And and tell us some also about the women in your family, as we know the uh the grandmothers, the clan mothers, the women of the societies are are equally as important as the chiefs. Tell us something about the women in your family. Well, like my great-grandmother, Sophie, uh, never spoke, you know, English. And uh, growing up, you know, uh, her stories and teachings and my grandmother, my mother's uh, mother, mother and today my mother is still alive and one of my auntie Frances Ice is still alive also in uh, 1999 when the Mission of Love Foundation offered to help we organized our Tioshpai Tioshpai is a family extended family unit and they appointed me the chief of our Wakiyam Khetta Tioshpai is a fire lightning Tioshpai. So I've been appointed by, you know, the women of our, you know, our Tioshpai. So would you say then that your mother is what we would call the, the clan mother of your family? Yes. Francis also, and so, you know, it, it's, it's very hard being a Lakota, you know, every day, you know, we live from day to day, and like, the tribal government has programs, but, you know, there, there is a Ogalawasu housing authority, but they don't help people with, you know, uh, who own homes on their own land, so... That is why, you know, uh, you know, I can't get assistance from the Ogawasu tribe. And, you know, it's uh, very critical that we have, you know, get our pump in order to, you know, uh, feed our livestock and, you know, personal hygiene. And, and uh, it's pretty hard you know, hauling water, so... of life here on his reservation. How do you do that, hauling water? You're doing that every day? Yes, we have a small uh, water tank that we load onto the pickup truck and go get water at the housing and uh, uh, buckets too for our home also. So Gary, do you have a, a a breakdown of of the of the total costs for putting both your water in for your home, which is also your office, and for uh, the museum? Because I'd like to be able to share that, um, you know, the entire the entire enchilada 
as they would say. And I, I should also mention to listeners that uh, when I came out from Nevada the end of February, Gary had invited me to come out and go to treaty councils and up to uh, um, Marty for um, the water lily storytelling gathering and continuation of treaty council that I, I first got to meet Gary down in Pine Ridge. And one of the things that you and your family do is, um, is you do, uh, food, you do Indian tacos, right? And they're delicious. I don't <laughs> Uh, we ought to think about putting together some kind of a gift, you know, to send to people some kind of um, thank you, uh, commemorating Wounded Knee and um, and your family so that we can uh, get this moving forward. Uh, you're supposed to, are there supposed to be some people coming out this summer? Yes, uh, I, I survive on a small VA disability money, and uh, last month I bought a new pump for the well, and uh, <clears throat> it cost like $350, and, and then uh, the company that supposed to help uh, installing our water pump, they want $650, so that's what I'm trying to do fundraising for. And, uh, during the <clears throat> during the protest camp at uh, Cannonball, the Standing Rock Reservation, I met a person from New York. So while visiting visiting him, he told me that his mother was a, a well-known artist, and her work was displayed in in a museum, and he was interested in the museum field. So you know, I told him oh, the director of the Holocaust Museum at Wounded Knee, and he became interested and offered to help. And I told him we need remodeling, and so December he sent uh, two of his workers to come here in Wounded Knee, and so I came back and uh, gave him the tour of the building and what all it needs to be, you know, remodeled. And so he said, uh, in April I'll send a crew down to help uh, renovate the building. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they they are coming, so. Hopefully, we'll get the building back in order and uh, presentable. And a lot of people come here from all over the world during the summer months. So we'll try to get it, uh, you know, remodeled. And by end of May, we usually open up our museum to the people that come. So... Let's take a moment. I'm going to uh, reach out to Eagle Eye Man and bring him in. And so we're going to take a short break. 
and listen to a song from um, Tony Palmer and the Breeds um, called Eagle in the Distance. And we will be right back with uh, Gary Rowland and Eagle Eye Man will be joining us. hardly hear you and there's lots of music playing. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, there's two Welcome Eagle. We're listening to music right now. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for helping me to become a warrior. Thank you for my victory. Welcome back. We're here on this Saturday, Standing with Standing Rock, Savage Sovereignty and Water Protectors, with Gary Rowland, and Eagle Eye Man has joined us. And I'm sorry, Eagle, you didn't realize that we had uh, taken a break while I was bringing you into the program <laughs> and listening to a piece of music. Welcome. Uh, Gary, uh, you know, there's so much that's been written about Wounded Knee, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and uh, and you were actually there in, uh, in the 70s, as well as uh, as being a descendant and it having been on your family's land in the 1800s. Tell us what your experience was in the 70s and also leading up to your work, you know, with Russell Means for the restoration of sovereignty for the nation. And uh, if you would. Okay. uh, I come from a lot long line of uh, veterans that served in the United States Army. My grandfather from my father's side, his name was Benton Roland Sr. He served in World War One in Europe and he got wounded twice. So he, he received a Purple Heart, two Purple Hearts. And my uncle served in World War One during the Germany, and my father served in Korean War along with my uncle 
Eugene Rowland. Eugene Rowland was uh, captured along with 5,000 men at that time, and uh, he was pre prisoner of war for three years. And myself, I uh, volunteered for draft back in 1968. And I heard stories of, you know, my father and his uncles and while they served in the military and, you know, they were airborne paratroopers. So I wanted to become a, a airborne paratrooper and that's why I joined the military. And back in 68, there was nine of us Indians from, uh, from the Indian Territory here in South Dakota. Pine Ridge, Rosebud, Lower Brule, and Rapid City. And out of the nine, we were, we were uh, all in the same company, same platoon. During the eight weeks basic training, like every week there's a competition among you know, the other platoons. And we won seven plaques, you know, being the out outstanding platoon. And and so, uh, out of the nine, three of us made airborne training, and we went to Fort Benning, Georgia. And so, it was me and Bill Means, Russell Means' younger brother, and Vern Blackhorse from Rapid City. So we we went to the airborne training, and. I'm very proud of that, you know. And right after I was discharged in uh, 1970, when it happened, and I was there throughout the duration of the 71 days. And during that time, the very government that had served honorably, you know, attacked us and tried to kill us. So from then on, I made a vow that I will never, ever honor the United States flag. And the United States flag is my enemy, just like, you know, our forefathers, Crazy Horse, Red Cloud, and Sitting Bull. In 1970, 1973, when the uh, occupation happened, I was here, and uh, I live here, and uh, I knew the terrain, and we had horses, so I, uh, my job was to bring in supplies, you know, go out, sneak out, and bring in supplies because I had relatives here during the occupation. And, uh, <coughs> and so that, uh, that gave me a lot of uh, experience and, and became an activist. And I worked closely with Russell Means, and uh, during 1986, when the Chief Bigfoot Memorial Ride started, I participated, and uh, in uh, 1988, Russell Means called and said, uh, bring some of your uh, Bigfoot riders to Montana, we're going to have a protest. So I rounded up 12 riders and horses, and we went to Linja, Montana, 
at a protest at the VIA building there. That night we camped at Chief Austin Tumong's uh, Cheyenne Chief. And I'm also part Shahila, Cheyenne. I'm 15, 16th Oglala Lakota and 116th Cheyenne, Northern Cheyenne. So I have relatives in the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. And I have, I have an uncle, his name is Tim Lemwoman from Lemger, Montana. He's a being activist and he was here during the, the Wonder Day takeover in 1973. So um, he arranged a metal plaque to be uh, erected during the, the protest at the, the, the Crow Agency, Montana. The little, uh, it was known as Custer National Park. And so we camped at Austin two months, and that night Russell Means spoke and he said, uh, we're going to uh, demand a name change of Custer and a memorial built in behalf of our people that gave their lives in 1876. And so we went into a lame of the Courageously Montana at the Custer National Park and Chief Austin Tumons blessed the horses and all the units, a lot of support. So we gathered on the south end of the park and the people marched and they told us the riders to when they get halfway uh, charge the monument. Custer Monument. So when we got halfway, we said, okay. So we started a full gallop and reached the monument and circled the monument four times. And we stood around the monument. So when the people came, Russell Means announced to the, the superintendent of the park came up. So he told him that we demand a name change. Custer, he's a mass murderer of our people, and we demand to change it, you know, to a little bighorn. So he agreed to help and uh, work out, you know, and, and so after that, a commission, a committee was organized, and Russell Means was one of the first members of the commission, and in 1991, Congress uh, under the old Bush, Herbert Bush, signed a bill that was passed by Congress to change it from uh, Custer National Park to, <coughs> excuse me, to uh, Little Bighorn National Park. And in behalf of Chief Bigfoot, you know, we that was a, a great victory for all indigenous people here in, in, in the United States. And so I was involved with Russell Means in um, 2007. A small delegation went to Washington, D.C. to deliver a document. And uh, that document was 
telling the Congress or the United States government that we withdraw from all treaties made with the United States government and that we are back to square one. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Russell passed on in uh, 2012. The, the gathering at the Standing Rock kind of revived our efforts to become a nation once again. And so uh, Phyllis, Phyllis Young was involved there in 2007, and she was at Standing Rock. She lives there, and I was very happy to you know, meet her again and trying to establish our nationhood. My involvement. In uh huh. So, what was Wounded Knee in the 70s really about? Well, it was uh, the corruption of the tribal government at that time. And the FBI sanctioned, there were a lot of beatings and uh, shootings, and um, there, were like, there, there was like over 60 unsolved murders at the time, and, and uh, the people had meetings and to try to resolve and, and stand on our treaties, what, the, you know, our people made treaties with the United States government, and they never honored any one of the treaties, so it was... Um, based on our treaty rights during the Wounded Knee occupation. And um, that will be a, a good place to uh, bring Eagle into the conversation. And I'm going to see uh, Gary and Eagle whether or not I can get Phyllis to join us. So once again, I'm going to play a short piece of music by Anton Miserak called Clear Running String Stream, and I'm going to see if I give Phyllis a ring if she's available. She, I talked to her earlier this morning, and she wanted to join us. She's going to New York tomorrow to speak at the UN, and she said... Um, she has an amazing speech that touches on the land and sovereignty. So we will be right back.
Okay. Um, looks like I got Phyllis's answering machine. So we're on the air with Gary Rowland, Sr., and Eagle Eye Man. Eagle, are you with us? Yes, I am. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, we were just beginning to touch on the struggle that the Chetty Sakowin, the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota, have uh, been having in trying to stand up for their treaty rights and to regain control of their land, their lives, their livelihood. Um, Gary, can you walk us through from your understanding uh, what the historical efforts have been and, and what's happening now in, in terms of reestablishing, asserting uh, sovereignty for the nation? from your experience and understanding? During the 1973 standoff here in Wounded Knee, the elders, the chiefs, and headsmen established an independent Oglala nation standing under our treaty. But right after the occupation was over, the feds, you know, the federal government was, after the leadership of the American Indian Movement, and there was a meetings held after uh, occupation at Kyle, South Dakota, at Chief Fusco's place, but nothing ever materialized. You know, the government made more promises and never lived up to those promises. And so I became one of the uh, member of the American Indian Movement, and. Uh, in '91, I was uh, appointed a chief of the Tetoa Treaty Council, and I was uh, given, you know, uh, my job description as a leader of the treaty, treaty council, and it was told to me in Lakota. And so I, there was a pipe offered to me, so I took the pipe and smoked it with the elders. And that the creator affirmed my leadership with the people. And in 1992, some people wanted to meet with me, so um, we had a sweat lodge ceremony, and then we talked, and they wanted to camp out in the Bear Butte in the Black Hills to reestablish our nationhood. And so uh, we camped out to Bear Butte, north of Rapid City, and we um, declared independence from the United States government. But the Olao Sioux Tribe, the Inner Reorganization Act, is deeply rooted in, in our in our people, our affairs, and so nothing really became of it, and I was appointed 
the commanding officer for the Akechita Society, the Warrior Society. In 1999, uh, we went to New York to the United Nations, and we spoke there. And then from there, the people I went with were from Rosebud, the next reservation, and they they were coming home. But I stayed and made a bus trip to Montreal, Canada. There was a Mohawk a war leader. So I went to uh, visit him and and uh, came back and then uh, I was involved with Russell the Republic of Lakota when we took the document to Washington D.C. But uh, the letter we submitted, we never got an answer from the State Department and. During the Standing Rock occupation, I was there. I, went, I was on a trip to Europe in uh, July, August, September, October. I came back, and when I went to Standing Rock, the Chetty Shakoin, the seven council fires of the Great Sioux Nation were there, and they organized and had seven teepees representing the seven council fires <coughs> and there was a man named Nape Lemire who introduced uh, <coughs> a treaty ID card and they gave us some samples of the treaty ID card, driver license, hunting and fishing license and even vehicle license plates and those barriers will automatically uh, relinquish to citizenship from the United States of America. And to me, that was the greatest you know, thing that ever happened to our people, to break away from the United States government and, and stand as a nation on Lakota, Nakota, Dakota nations who made treaties and to recover our land and our resources so I was very happy that that happened, and uh, and today we're still struggling to get our birth certificates recognized, and uh, we have a passport that has been recognized by Mexico and Canada, and so we're still organizing our nation nationhood, and uh, I'm hoping to select some individuals to be ambassadors for our nation and to go to other countries, other organizations, and make treaties with them, treaty of friendship. And and so I'm very happy that this is, uh, you know, blooming. And during the Wounded Knee 1890, there was a holy man that uh, said that in the future, uh, he said that the, the sacred hoop had shattered at Wounded Knee in 1890. The dreams of the people died in the snow. But he said the sacred tree had died. But in the future, the sacred tree will bloom again. And that's what is happening today. So 
I'm very happy to be involved. Yes. And when those seven council fires were at Standing Rock, I mean, in effect, the the true government of the nation um, was present. I mean, that one could say that was the replanting of the tree, I suppose. Yeah, the Standing Rock opened the eyes of all the uh, indigenous nations here in uh, Turtle Island and we received a lot of support from people from South America and all over and there was over 300 tribes that came to support the Standing Rock Reservation and it had it woke up the, you know, the giant, red giant, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's talk for a minute about AIM. Why is there there's so much controversy surrounding AIM, or there has been, and even within the community itself? Can you speak to that at all? As as we as everyone works towards towards unity. What what was that all about? Well, the American Indian Movement is the only organization that I know of to speak the truth, and uh, they, uh, nobody is afraid to face the United States government of all the atrocities and wrongdoings and injustices. And so, the American Indian Movement is the only organization that truly represents the. Grassroots people here, and of course, you know, the United States always uh, try to, you know, send uh, agents to disrupt and you know, give and give the movement a bad name. But you know, like the real uh, indigenous grassroots people here on the reservation, there's a lot of aim. Supporters and A members, and every year, every annual gathering here in Wonderney, we have the the Four Direction Walk in honor of our ancestors and our treaty rights. So, you know, AIM is steadily moving along, and that's why uh, I'm also the director of the Wonderney local Wonderney AIM chapter, and uh, the four founding basic principles of the American Indian movement is spirituality, sovereignty, sobriety, and support. And uh, that's why I got involved in the Standing Rock. That's wonderful. (laughs) Who can argue with those principles? Yeah, to yeah. my family, support is very important. That any worthwhile cause, we have to be involved and support any worthwhile cause. And I told them, you know, in the future, you'll be proud that you have participated in, in any gatherings, and you'll be proud of who you are and you know who you stand for. Uh-huh. Uh, my sister was there. 
in September and her family and my nephews and grandkids and my daughters, four of my daughters, I took them up there and my grandkids and son. And so we're happy that we stood up against the United States government again. And this is like, you know, in our museum, I painted a picture of some words that, you know, the wars never end. And so our museum is like a, a photo gallery. Well, I will have to come, Gary. Next time I come, I'll have to come. You'll have to take me to the museum. Gary and I uh, got to go a few weeks ago up to Rosebud to the college to visit with Professor Victor Duville, who uh, is a uh, tribal historian, and we spoke with him both about sovereignty and the clan uh, mother system and star knowledge and um, but I haven't gotten to tour the museum yet and uh, look forward to that I know um, two things one I'm really excited that I've made connection with a gentleman who's uh, down in Mexico, and his name is uh, Christopher Lawrence, and I'm going to be interviewing him, I believe, on Monday for a future show, but he is trained and empowered in the use of um, Ibogaine, which, are you familiar with Ibogaine, Gary? No. I know Eagle knows a little bit about it because I think I told him. Ibogaine uh, comes from originally from Gabon, Africa, and it is an herbal that uh, it takes about three days to go through the uh, the treatment, the process. And apparently when people complete the process, their addictions, whether it be to meth, cocaine, heroin, alcohol, uh, tobacco, not used in a ceremonial fashion, um, as well as um, emotional um, ancestor trauma, uh, PTSD, are cleared. And I'm really excited about visiting with uh, this this man because one of his uh, life's visions is to bring this to uh, the Osseti Sakwan, to the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota Nation. It's illegal, apparently, in the United States, but since we have uh, some sovereignty, potentially we may be able to um, get that applied uh, because as many are aware in restoring 
sovereignty to the nation, the people have to be able to uh, return to health, to uh, return to their uh, rightful stature. So um, that's very exciting to me. And uh, also on the on the topic of sovereignty, uh, Gary Eagle and I were introduced to and speaking to a gentleman named Lyle Christians. Are you familiar with him? No. Um, and I guess he knows Manape, who I hope will join us on the air sometime. <laughs> he has a standing invitation. Um, and he was saying that uh, he's working with Manape and that, to his understanding, there are 13 tribes that are um, at this point uh, with the treaty work, with um, standing on the Treaty of Fort Laramie, and then we always get into the discussion of the necessity to base sovereignty on the return to traditional government, including the um, authority of of the women, of the clan mothers, and um, so that may be a place to um, to bring you, Eagle, into the conversation and to let you and, and Gary, um, you know, discuss. So, welcome, Eagle. Hello there. <laughs> uh, I apologize, Gary, uh, for when you were talking earlier, I make out almost like anything of what you were saying, just a word here and there, basically. So, I'm not when you were talking about the 70s there and Pine Ridge and what have you, I couldn't really hear anything, so I don't know what you may have said there. Um from my understanding, though, you might have bumped into Meredith Quinn because he was there at that time as well in Pine Ridge and actually ended up taking the Chiefs to the United Nations at that time. Uh, what was that? I put a post there. What was that Chief's name, Lisa? Do you remember the one he talks about? He sat down and smoked with and found him to be a true old traditional chief? No, I'm sorry, I don't. You know, I'm trying to remember his name, but... Anyways, I'm very pleased to hear Manapi is making progress with what you were explaining, Gary. I could hear that about the uh, driver's licenses and things like that. And the reason I say that is because that's exactly the whole point of like what I teach about sovereignty, what I learned from Meredith Quinn. And it's not a hard thing to understand. When you look at that white man's government and world, and you see them issuing driver's licenses, birth certificates, you know, as governmental functions, right? Anything that that white man's government can do, you can do. So, yes, you know, issuing your own licenses and things like that uh, is a perfectly normal, natural thing to do. Yes, that's normal. But it's what standing there is still a difference though between what standing are you standing on when you're doing that 
which is the key to the matter, the crux. Because you could, for instance, take a standing as the Sioux Nation, right? And say, for example, stand on the tree ties of Fort Laramie. So I'm being specific in calling it that because it's not a treaty. Okay? First thing to understand. This is what I'm talking about. What standing well, are you going to stand on? Because if you stand on the treaty, as it's called, of Fort Laramie, then you can do so and you can do those things that you were talking about Manape's doing and what I just said. But you're only doing it as a third world nation. But are you sure, Eagle, that the clan mothers weren't behind the Treaty of Fort Laramie like Bunny Sings Wolf of Lakota, Dakota, NakotaNation.org pointed out when, whenever the chiefs went out in their regalia and went to meetings, the, the women had to be behind them because they were the ones who got them ready. So is there any possibility that the Treaty of Fort Laramie was actually a treaty and not uh, simply a treatise? Look at who signed it. Who are the signatories to the document? I don't know. Do you know, Gary? Is there any, is there any signing listed there by a head clan mother in her capacity as the head clan mother? And if the answer is no, then no, it is not a treaty. Okay. But as everyone says, I mean, we can go this far and then build on it. Is that correct? Well, you can do if, as long as you're doing that with the understanding that you would be leaving that entity behind. Like, as Meredith says, and... There are some Dakota, Nakota, Lakotas that take exception to it. But it, the truth of the matter is, Sioux, an old French word meaning a drunken Indian. Do you really think your ancestors, Gary, called themselves Sioux Indian? Go back, like, imagine in your mind, 500 or 1,000 years ago, and how did your people call themselves? And I don't think it was Sioux. Just like Cree for the Nihiawak in Canada. They all call themselves Cree now, but that was a white man's name for a Nihiawak Indian. Well, Same as a Soto Indian, the Anishinaabe. They're all, all, all of the Indians nowadays call themselves by a white man's word for themselves. And that has a legal meaning. Because then, if you're saying, they remember always that they, they use your own words against you. You said you were a Sioux Indian. So you are a prisoner of war. And you're a third world nation. Because it's your own words that they use. Seven council fires of the Great Nation, the Ogallala, were part of the Tikoan Nation. Tikoan is, is a big house, you know, big house. The Ogallala, Rosebud, Trine River, Standing Rock, and Fort Peck were known as the Tikoan Sioux Nation. 
and we were the ones that uh, signed the 1868 treaty, which covers the Black Hills. Excuse me. So uh, the other nine signatory nations of the 1851 treaty, they're not entitled to the Black Hills, only the Tetons as a chief red cloud and they're the ones that signed the 1868 treaty. So, uh, we're, you know, we're the only ones that entitled to the, the Black Hills today. Well, you may be the only ones that have title to the Black Hills, Gary, but it is not because of that, what you're calling a treaty. Unless that was signed by your clan mothers in their capacity as head clan mothers, it's a treatise. It is an international agreement, and it can be called a treaty. When I say, and Meredith said, all of the United States and Canada, what everybody knows as Canada and the United States, it is all still today, right now, this second, pick that earth up and feel it in your hand, Indian land. And do you know why it is still Indian land, Carrie? Because it's never been signed away. Do you follow that? It is still Indian land because the Indians have not signed away. Now, as you were just saying, it was your ancestors that, that signed away the Black Hills. The Indians that signed that document were no longer sovereign Indians, Gary, which is the whole point and scam of the whole endeavor, everything. It's all an assumption by the white man. They tricked you into thinking that you signed anything, giving anything away. Was that they didn't have the authority to sign the land away. They were no longer sovereign. And that reminds me, Meredith writes exactly about that in the Black Hills. That's why they were after the signatories out in the bush, Sitting Bull and all those guys, because they were the signatories. They were the sovereigns. They were the ones that had the right to be able to sign away the land. Not all the 98% of the Indians that were now on reservations. See, that's what I'm getting at. There's two groups of Indians. You have Indians that remained original to their original system of government and religion. Then you had the vast majority of the Indians that no longer wanted to live that way and lived on reserves. And in doing so, they became nationals of the United States. But Gary's After, ancestors and chiefs were, I mean, they were still living traditionally, weren't they, Gary? Yes. Uh, 1871, the United States... They were living on a reserve. Doesn't that answer the question? To a degree. 1871. Um, <laughs> if they had reserves prior to the white man putting them on them, then yeah. If they lived as Indians on the land, I would think then no. Maybe this is complicated stuff. If you live on a reserve, do you think that is your original way of living, culture, and lifestyle? No. In, in, in right, it's in not hard to fathom. Wait, let's carry... unpalatable. Well, let's carry 
think this through, and listeners understand that these are working councils that we have been having since August to help move sovereignty forward. So thank you all for bearing with us because these are important conversations between Gary, who is a chief, and Eagle, um, who is um, the living representative of the understandings brought forward by Musa, Meredith Quinn, who was himself a, a Dakota and a sovereign Dakota, descended from a clan mother whose teachings he brought forward. So, Gary, um, you were saying? The 1871 appropriation bill that was passed, the United States government inserted a, they call it a rider bill, and there it says that there will be no more treaty making with the, you know, the Indians, and from there on it shall be known as acts or agreements. So 1877, by an act of Congress, uh, the United States occupied the Black Hills. And uh, in 1980, the Black Hills claim went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court reaffirmed that the, the, they call a Sioux Nation, you know, and the Sioux Nation still holds title to the sacred Black Hills. But then, you know, the United States is still illegally occupying our territory, the Black Hills. So that, you know, the history of our uh, treaty. And today we still, uh, you know, we still have our treaty councils actively working to for the return of the sacred Black Hills and all uh, the 1851 treaty territory also. Eagle? Yes? Your thoughts, I mean, are there... Are, are there, to your knowledge, then, any treaties that were signed by signatory of the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota? Uh, yeah, Meredith writes, he talks about how you do have treaties with some of the various different kingdoms in Europe. You've got a treaty with Denmark, you've got treaties... Uh, France, um, Sweden, I think uh, there was like five or six. You you have you do have treaties with the European nations, and I mean treaties, not treatises that are called treaties. But all that knowledge seems to have been lost because, in effect, they're trying to make you spin your wheels by focusing on treaties that aren't treaties and not letting you get to the crux of the matter, Gary. Do you hear do you hear what Eagle's saying? Yes. And why we keep going back to the uh the clan mother form of government um as being essential? Because what can happen so say that everybody gets, 
you know, driver's licenses and passports and this and that. Um, but as as Eagles pointed out, and he, you may want to, Eagle, describe for listeners, many of whom are probably joining us for the first time, what you mean when you say a third world nation. Because everyone assumes that a third world nation now simply refers to economic status. Can can you go through the, the basics, please? Um, yep. It's, <coughs> it's um, exceedingly simple. It's in, in that uh, if anyone does go on Facebook, there's a page called the Universal, Universal Law, the Writings of Meredith Quinn. And there's a number of posts of Meredith's work explaining a lot of different subjects. And he was a very knowledgeable man in many different areas. But the one, the foundation of international law, which describes the six treaties that make up the foundation from which come the law of nations, which Gary, you'll remember, the white man uses in the Constitution of the States, for example. Doesn't it mention that the law of nations will be the law of the land? So there's a hint there, because <laughs> that makes it binding law on the states, not on you, because you're not a national of the states. It's the states, all of its and any of its creations, you understand, have nothing to do with you. you know I mean, like, how could the Constitution, any part of the Constitution of the United States, have anything to do with you as your own original Indian? Weren't you around on that land a long time before those guys ever turned up? See what I'm getting at? But the foundation, third world nation, is a country that has no legitimate clan mother system of government. Literally. It's that, that simple. Everybody's heard of third world nations on the news, and you see them in all, like you say, countries in the third world and things like that. But that's because they are all using government systems that have no legitimate clan mother system of government. And they can have driver's licenses and passports and all those things. Well, don't they? Mm -hmm. Bolivia or any one of them countries, you know, or uh, Haiti, for example, that's a third world nation, right? Got hit there and they went and meant to help it out after that hurricane went through there. Right? Mm -hmm. Don't Haitians have passports? Don't Haitians issue driver's licenses for their people. Uh-huh. It's a third world nation. It's issuing passports, birth certificates, driver's licenses. Sound familiar? Yes. So you can do those things, but what standing are you doing them under, Gary? Just because it's happening, it's working doesn't mean it's the whole story. Because the thing is, it's a third world nation, and that does mean at some point, if the United States wished to, they could just turn around and say, no, we're not honoring that anymore. Because you're a third world nation. They are a second world nation. One rule of law supersedes another. You understand how you've got your courts, your regular courts, and then you've got your Supreme Court, for example, which is higher than all the other ones. It's the top one, isn't it? One rule of law supersedes another higher rules of law. 
If you're a third world nation, you're at the bottom of the rung. Bottom. So, so actually, the greatest strength that Gary has, and is is his mother and his aunt. He was saying that they appointed him as chief, which means Absolutely. within that small seed of Gary's family, the true nation is still there. Yes, it is. Exactly. Any one and all of the Indians can return to, if they wish, to their original form of government and religion. There's nobody stopping them. Except yourself, so, maybe. Yeah, that's so all the people is, I'm talking to. This is why uh, Gary and Eagle and I have been talking about at some point, Gary and I and some others coming up and meeting with, uh, and I'm going to say his name wrong, I see it, Wienesquist. Wienesquist. Um, and uh, the people up there who have made progress. And I mentioned that also, Gary, this morning when I spoke to Phyllis. And I believe that Gary and I, if Gary will be available after Phyllis and LaDonna and others come back from speaking at the UN, we'll be going up to Standing Rock to see who else might be interested in coming on such a, a journey so that we can uh, move this sovereignty forward and return the Oseti Sakowin to First Nation status. Yeah, except for that term First Nation, it's the, the concept idea behind it, but the actual wording again, <laughs> original nation I think would be better for <laughs> Because right. that Third Nations is a word and terming that only actually came into existence in Canada here. Like, it's not that long ago, only like 30 years or so, 30 maybe. I don't even think 40, 30, 30 odd years, maybe 40 years ago. Like that term First Nations, it seems so common now, but it's not actually been in use for that long. Well, Gary, I have a question for you. If your family is functioning in that way where your mother and your aunt and the women appointed you there there must be other families that you know of who are acting in a similar fashion aren't there you know as a leader uh, i've been involved in the treaty meetings and to be actively involved in a treaty council and you know so they're aware of what's what's happening and they support me so but i'm saying are there other families where the women have appointed the men the chiefs and the women are still there behind the chiefs uh, that you know other, of uh, a couple other teoshpas that are standing with us also. So. Well, then it seems that we would want to invite them as well and work with them because from what I'm hearing and understanding, 
from what Eagle's translating of what Meredith Quinn was able to bring forward of the ancient truths that as you were with me when we saw Victor, he agreed that a return to the clan system is essential. Um, then we're we're finding then the people that we need, Gary. Yes. Uh, uh, there was a lady in uh, Standing Rock, the, one of the last uh, people to surrender. Uh, she's in, uh, I think, touring in California right now. Oh, Regina. You mean yeah. Regina. Regina, she's one of the main uh, grandmothers that are standing up to form you know, our nationhood, and I hope that uh, the, uh, the local grandmothers get involved and have a big meeting. And so maybe some of them could come with us to Canada if we go. Yes. Yes. Well, I, w- I, as you know, Gary, I s- traveled up to Marty with Regina and her son Walter, and I actually was corresponding with her this morning, and that's something we can speak about. And yes, she was just, I know she was just at Stanford, and I don't know if she's part of the trip that's going to the UN uh, in the next few days, um, but I'm, you know, definitely seeing Regina and Phyllis and LaDonna, and hopefully when you and I, if you can come with me, go up to Standing Rock and within the next couple of weeks, we can figure out exactly who, and then work with uh, Eagle and uh, Winesquiz and figure out when and how to, you know, how to arrange this trip. Yes, uh, Faith, Faith Spada Eagle is one of the strong leaders, the grandmothers also. Yes, oh, Thank that you. would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. So... And uh, I always like to beat this drum. Eagle, will will you explain to listeners again why the word savage is a word of power and is actually probably the... It's so hard to know what word to use to describe um, people and even using the word people. <laughs> to uh, say that, you know, listeners capitalized or capital letter lowercase or all lowercase. So again, the deception, Gary, like that constitution when it talks of a government of the people, by the people, for the people. People assume people means them. Go and look it up. <laughs> it doesn't. Anyway, that's a side point, but savage. Um, under international law, there are only three classes of physical beings. Period. Number one is a savage. 
Now, obviously, most people hear that word and think of it in a derogatory manner, as if it is a derogatory term. Not understanding or knowing and realizing it is a legal classification of a physical being under international law. If you are a savage, then you are a sovereign, and you are in the number one spot in the world hierarchy of sovereigns. Number two is a person, person which most people may be aware of, the artificial entity, from the Latin, Roman, persona, mask. It's the part in the play that you play. It's a character, artificial, made up. You have a subclassification of the person called a private person, which in the civilized rule of law, so I'm stressing these terms and words, civilized rule of law, is the royalty. A private person are your kings and queens of the European countries. The Queen of England, for example, is a private person. Your person is your average Joe on the street who doesn't know who he is. You ask most people, give them their name and ask them, are you this person? What will they say? Yeah. Because they don't know but by, that by answering yes, they've just proven themselves to be mentally incompetent. They are imbeciles. Now, I'm stressing that, any readers out there listening, that this is what, literally what you're dealing with. If you think you're a person and you call yourself a person, remember what I said, they use your own words against you. You just proved yourself to be unsound of mind, non-compass mentis. You don't know that. How can you be a person? You're a live flesh and blood being, aren't you? A person is a dead entity. A person cannot walk, talk, fart, or think. It's imaginary. And, and we have one of our council. We have one of our council members whom I won't name, who likes to think that. Well, Eagle, you're just you know pulling out these. Oh, things making up words, my own definition. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's. I haven't even bothered to respond to that because it's just I'm finding it amusing. Actually, I mean, give me a break. Go and grab a law dictionary. Look it up. Any law stoop. Like that's just so far off base as to be absurd. That's the whole point of this. It is a world of law to the letter of the law. And the amusing thing about his post is because he says words, which is pointed out in the whole in that post, words and terms are two different things. Words can mean many things. One word can mean many different things. Like gear, for example. Go grab your gear or the gears on your bicycle. Both spelt the same. Same word, but two totally entirely different meanings, right? Right. A, a term can only mean one thing only. And it means exactly that one thing only, which is why it's called a term. It's limited. You can look these terms up. Look up the meaning of term. It tells you it's the limiting, like setting the boundaries of something. That's it. 
a word, look up the meaning of word, look in a law dictionary, a word can be expanded and contracted because some words can mean many different things. You can expand it, you can contract it, but you cannot do that to a term. So in regards to reply to that is bullshit. <laughs> Pull your head out of your ass, actually read a sodding book instead of just looking up shit on Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> Calm because down. Wikipedia has been uh, anybody can put stuff on there. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, <okay>. Gary. <laughs> um, get, I want to welcome... Person, but just, oh, I'm sorry. As I say, the third classification is an inhabitant, which is a third world citizen, as well as deer, moose, elk, or the other inhabitants of the bush. And my point is, you know what you can do to deer, moose, and elk, right, Gary? They taste very good, and you can shoot them. You know, they were still eating Indians up until 1850, and you were called the long pig. Inhabitants. You've got the same rights as all the other inhabitants, as an inhabitant. And you know what they can do to inhabitants. Yes. I just had a, the blessing and curse of getting to watch the film on the Doctrine of Discovery that detailed the murder of uh, savages on this continent, uh, on the East Coast and uh, throughout the country, and didn't so much go into the cannibalism, but I always like Meredith's explanation of why there are no Indians left in the Caribbean, which relates back to what Eagle was just saying about Long Pig, because apparently Columbus and his crew, thinking that they were not um, equal, they're equal, being non-Christian, uh, thought of them as food. But in any case, um, I want to welcome, I believe we have Red Clover has joined the council circle. Are you with us, Red Clover? Yes, or good is it <laughs> good afternoon? Good afternoon. I want to welcome I had Red Clover. I'm absent uh, in the interim because we have a water-walking grandmother who profiled her work on Heidi's call, One Love Rising. And, you know, we have an Ojibwe grandmother who is going to lead a worldwide grand chorus on May 1st at 11.11 Central Time. There will be a number to tune into uh, to where we can all join together and sing to the waters together. So I was engaged in that, but always love to hear you. I'm in. Return the feathers. Thank you for your acknowledgement. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. And uh, where can people find out more information on that wonderful water prayer event? In Red Clover. 
seen actually our friend Bob Challenger is putting up a Facebook page just for the event. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be labeled, perhaps Mayfair's Water Blessing, you know. Um, but I'll be passing more information, and I know you'll be seeing it. The, the phone number to call in at 11:11. I actually have that number. We're going to do it on the International Children's Month line, and that is 857-232-0156. You need a passcode on that line, and it's 676-237. And the uh, Ojibwe uh, song will post... uh, that and spread that around it too. It kind of starts out that Nipi will be the song. And the goal is for all of us to sing to the water. Thank you. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. And while we're talking about words and terms, I I just want to touch on one of the other hot button words, which is the word human since we all generally tend to refer to ourselves as humans and humanitarians. and uh, Can we pop that bubble once again, Eagle, please, as far as what I'm the term good. human means? <laughs> yeah, well, you, re- you recollect, as I said, they use your own words against you. I am a savage. I am not a human being. Savage and human are remote from each other. If you look up Ballantyne's Law Dictionary, third edition, look up the word human, and it says, see, as in go and look at, S-E-E, monster. So, human, go and look at the word, the term, monster. His law dictionaries deals in terms and not words. So, if you go and look at that monster, well, right there it tells you a human being is a monster. What is a monster? A monster is a prodigious birth. What is prodigious? Prodigious. This is a. It's tracing the etymology of the words right back to its root. This is how you discover what the terms are actually saying. Human monster. Monster prodigious birth. Prodigious means prodigal. Most of you have probably heard the story of the prodigal son in the Bible, for example. Mm-hmm. Prodigal means spendthrift. Someone that cannot control their financial affairs and therefore need a guardian to be appointed to take care of them. And that says it all, Gary, right there. If you're like, and the, that, most people think, well, I'm taking care of paying all my bills and things like that. If any of those have a little more knowledge of the law and what's going on and know about the bonds and the persons and the bonds and things like that, would know then that any charges, any anything at all in that white man's world, it's commonly required money, as most people conceive it, to pay for a bill, would be settled with your pen and your ink and your signature. But nobody knows how to do that, do they? So, they are human beings, because that's monstrous. They do not know how to take care of their financial affairs. 
I'd pretty much guarantee you not one person listening on this show knows, well, maybe not one, but you never know who's listening in <laughs> that does know. But the common folk on the street don't know what I'm talking about. Well, I think more people are aware, but most of us still don't quite know how to get out of uh, being the property of... Yeah. You know, it's like that person you were asking the other day, like, how to deal with their, you know, that artificial world and things. Yeah. I remember I said about the three classes of physical beings, savages, persons, inhabitants. See, that question that you're asking me is more along the lines of how do you act as a private person, right? Right. You're asking for the knowledge of the private person. Yes. How to operate as one, because a private person is the royalty. If you were a private person, <coughs> do you think the Queen of England needs a passport to go anywhere? I don't know. Here's a question for you. Gary, do you think the Queen of England has a passport? No, I just read an article right. this morning that she doesn't need a passport. No, she doesn't need a passport, doesn't she? Does she? Why is that? It's because she's the Queen. Everybody knows who she is. She issues the passports. You get it? Because yeah. a passport, all it is, is uh, telling someone you're traveling under the safety and the protection of this sovereign. Um. If you have a passport from the Queen of England, it's telling the world when you go somewhere, you're protected by the Queen of England. You're one of her citizens and subjects. Right. Or my U.S. passport. Um, Eagle. And Gary and Red Clover, in the quarter of an hour that we have remaining, I'd like to ask Gary if he would put in perspective what the Osseti Sakawan is facing and what all of the nations, original nations, are facing right now under um, Herr Trump the commander-in-chief of uh, this U.S. corporation and why it's so imperative now that these corrections are made. What is, what is happening right now coming down from the U.S. government? Gary, can you explain that? Well, the Trump administration is trying to terminate all federally recognized tribes and to privatize Indian land ownership and so they can freely uh, get at our resources. So that's uh, yep. very dangerous coming down the road. And so we have to organize as a nation to resist some of the you know, uh, United States' plans to terminate us and put us under the state of South Dakota jurisdiction. Uh, today, we don't have uh, South Dakota Highway Patrol and whatever. We have our own jurisdiction, so that's uh, coming down the road. And so we have to 
organized and build our nationhood. You know, there's a lot of components, and you know, such as agriculture, education, health. All those have to be organized. And in the past, you know, our our people were, um, you know, as a nation, as a nation, we are recognized as a nation because we have our language, our land, our spirituality, and that what constituted a nation, and we still are a, a nation. So we have to organize and pay prayer for all the, you know, injustices that will happen to our people. Oh, here's a lovely thing to spend a couple of minutes on while we have time. Eagle, could you explain, if you can, in the time we have remaining, why all the wealth of the Vatican actually belongs to what we call Indians? Do you have time for that? Uh, yeah, very quickly, like from what Meredith says, the white, the Indian tribe, the red tribe, and the white tribe in Europe, we've had trade treaty going back like a couple of thousand years or more, I think. There's been trade going on between the two of our tribes, you know, for a long time. This is the whole thing about the bullshit about uh, Columbus's discovery, because Columbus did not discover anything. He had maps of where he was going before he left. He already knew where he was going. He had maps, detailed maps. The reason he had them is because there had been trade going on between the white tribe and the red tribe. The white tribe defeated the Romans in warfare in 408 AD. They had to sign treaty with us as the white tribe. Uh, Meredith says the head chief of the Americus Empire in North and South America, and that's how well organized you were as Indians, there was one head grandmother for the entire continent, both continents, and her chief was a Dakota. It was a Dakota head grandmother, so it was Dakota chief at that time. He was in Rome at the signing of that treaty. Under that treaty, Indians became first world citizens because of events that happened in the past. There was a point in time when there was no food growing around the world, except in the States, and the Indians fed the world, the entire world. They gave them foods and seed stocks to replant, which coincidentally, if you look around the world, a lot of the foodstuffs growing in different parts of the world, they all originate from the Americas. Now, in that treaty, uh, so they, they were, because of that, they were made first world citizens and meant to be given your credentials to travel amongst the hierarchy of the world. This is what I'm saying about being a savage. That's what it's talking about. If you're a savage, you have the right to travel anywhere in the world. And they, the Romans are meant to issue you those credentials like that's amongst themselves because you can go anywhere. Now, the Vatican, the white tribe, the trade agreement between the two tribes, for, the, for us to pay you what we owed you, we took a segment of our population and put them aside with the sole purpose of making money to pay the Indians what was owed them under the trade agreement. So the Vatican was created by the white tribe, a segment of its population, to make money to pay the Indian what was owed them. Okay, that's 408, when the Romans were defeated. 1491, the descendants of the Romans purchased back title to their old Roman Empire. 
In doing so, though, they also inherited the trade agreements between the White Tribe and the Red Tribe. They found, though, that they didn't really want to pay the Indian what they owed them under that trade agreement. So rather than honor it, they didn't go against them directly. They sent Columbus. Columbus was ciphered as a pirate. Pirate is a legal term, has meaning. He was literally ciphered, made into a pirate, and then sent out to go and exterminate the tribes that the white tribe had previously had this trade agreement with. And there are plaques in the British Museum of the attack plans of some of the Indian villages and things of Cabot and the different guys, you know, when they went in. Like, none of this is made up. It's in the museums. So they was, he was sent as a pirate. See, he had to be made a pirate because what do pirates do? Break the law. But under that Treaty of 408, these Romans are still bound to protect you. So they couldn't go against you directly. So they created this pirate instead for him to do it for them kind of thing, right? So they got around it, if you understand what I'm saying. So that's what the Vatican is. All the wealth of the Vatican belongs to the Indian nations. And you better believe that that is pretty much all the wealth of the world. Because that's what they've been doing, right? Claiming all the wealth of the world under the paper pools and the doctrine of discovery when they didn't discover shit. They're just making up that they discovered it. They wiped out 200 million of my peoples before they started wiping out your peoples, Gary. Murder says they wiped out 160 million Indians. And he says the white man, historians or whatever, will only say 100 million. So Murder says, okay, I'll go with 100 million then. Still 100 million. But he also writes that they wiped out 200 million white tribal peoples in Europe. And you know why they were wiping them out? They were wiping out anyone that had knowledge of the prior existence of the Americas, prior to Columbus's supposed discovery. Because you can't claim to discover something if you already know that it exists, can you? But if you wipe out everybody that already knew that it existed, you can make up the story, hey, look what we discovered. And we're claiming it. And that's what happened. And that is a good note to uh, close this episode of our council. And I would, unless Gary, you have any questions or comments, and I would ask you if you would do the uh, closing prayer after any questions or comments or thoughts you'd like to share. And... um, let me give Red Clover an oper- one more chance to pick up the feather if she needs to. Okay. Yeah, Red will just say that, thank goodness the truth is being told, that there's still people left to tell the story, and I will hand this fence to Gary. Thank you. Oh, um... President Trump and the whole United States Congress must be humans because they're monsters. <laughs> I hope. I'll say the closing prayer. Oh, <laughs> 
Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Red Clover. Thank you, Eagle, for joining us and listeners. Thank you for listening to the Earth Aid Now program today. To become part of the Utopian Realities Slope Earth Aid Now mission, contact White Buffalo Nation, gmail.com, and visit wbnslope.weebly.com and our White Buffalo Nation Facebook page and support the SLOPE mission at gofundme.com slash SLOPE. Again, right now we are especially accepting contributions to assist Gary Rowland Sr. with getting the funds raised for his water at home and for the Wounded Knee Museum. We've raised $50 and need another $600. When you go to the GoFundMe page, it will show that some $600 have been raised, but that's a running tally since we started the GoFundMe account for our Earth Aid Now work. So your contributions are still very necessary. Let's make sure this elder has the basics of life covered so he can continue his important work for the mending of the sacred hoop. And we are going to close with a uh, of music, let's see, by Trevor Hall, Standing Like a Rock, in support of our brothers and sisters at Standing Rock and those water protectors who are facing uh, the courts.
And special thanks to our sponsor, um, BioAge. Uh, we will uh, listen to a short message. Friends, nothing in life is more important than your good health. That's why I recommend BioAlgae Concentrates, Bio Superfood Nutritional Supplements. These supplements feed every cell in your body microscopically. No matter how you feel, BioAlgae Supplements will help you. Many people feel energized shortly after the first time they take it. And visit BioAge.com backslash Utopia or phone 877-288-9116 for more information and to order. And be sure to mention Utopia for a 15% discount. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Listeners, together let's sustain life on planet Earth. That's yours, mine, and all of ours on and in the land, waters, and air. Thanks for joining us. Till next time, this is Siaba, Lisa Wolf for Slope. Save and sustain life on planet Earth, Earth Aid Now. Let's give the Earth and all our relations freedom from fear, lack, and degradation and bring a utopian reality now. Happy Earth Day. <laughs>